everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, we sat down and spoke with Gabe Frank, a co-founder at Arcade. Arcade is an NFT lending platform that lets users take loans against their blue chip NFT projects. In this discussion, we spoke about the different types of assets that Arcade brokers for loans, how real-world assets like luxury goods can be brought on-chain and borrowed against, going from a corporate structure to a DAO model, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the guest or hosts may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With all that said, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Gabe Frank, the co-founder of Arcade, which is an NFT lending platform. How are you doing today, Gabe? Good, Dylan. Nice to be here. Yeah, super psyched you joined. I think that NFTs have kind of came onto like the mainstream radar in the past couple of years. And there's also been Meteoric as the Rise was, something similar to a fall. So I kind of want to start with like a high-level question. Anyone who's a crypto user probably understands like FTX was bad and that there was a bear market that resulted that collapse. But within the Web3 space, there's a bunch of different verticals. There's like NFTs and DeFi's and things like this. And NFTs have been hit the hardest, I think, out of most verticals since the most recent bull run. There was that kind of article that came out that said 95% of the 73,000 projects are worthless. So I think that somebody who's building a platform like Arcade is a long-term thinker and probably is able to look beyond the short-term bear-bust cycles or bull-bear cycles. So to start off the interview, I'm just kind of curious to hear, what are the reasons for hope in the NFT space? What has kept you and other builders convicted in building during this kind of negative sentiment timeframe? The 95% number sounds accurate. I think it's probably more than that that are worthless in the big scheme of things. There is a small percentage that is still super valuable and it's still a billion dollar market. So the assets and NFTs that Arcade usually deals with are the ones that have some staying power. We still have a, a lot of profile picture collections, so PFP collections like punks and board apes. But also we deal with the assets like art, 101 art, digital art, gen art, like Squiggles and Fidenzas, Tyler Hobbs. A lot of that stuff has staying power and we see those assets more like luxury goods and it's luxury digital collectibles on chain that are on ETH mainnet right now. That's where most of the high value NFTs are. And I think a lot of the, the 95% came onto the scene because NFTs were a new canvas and it kind of projects and people wanted to experiment to see what this new technology could turn into. What keeps us going is that it's still a huge market. You know, there's probably about five to six billion of lendable NFTs with staying power over the long run. And those are the NFTs that we're dealing with. Cool. So yeah, I mean, it does seem like that there were certain blue chips that emerged and you can kind of see just scrolling through Arcade, get a good picture of what those are, like the Azukis and CryptoPunks and things like this that folks have been talking about for more than just six months at a time. So before we delve into what Arcade does and kind of the umbrella of products and services under the NF tech umbrella. You have a really interesting story arc when it comes to coming into the crypto and blockchain space. We both started around the same time in 2018, but you uh, went into custodial services. So you first started with Bitco, and that, of course, was a custodial service provider for institutions acquired by Galaxy Digital. And then you became the director of sales for Curve, which is a cloud-based institutional digital asset wallet service, which was acquired by PayPal. So you kind of came into the space focusing on what some might call traditional crypto assets and trying to maybe act as a bridge between TradFi and Web3. I'm curious to hear, why did you land at Bitco and start on the institutional side of custodial services? And what has, as Web3 has kind of progressed, how has your career arc kind of mirrored that? Good questions. Thanks for that. Yeah, so I, I got my start in crypto in 2018 working at Bitco. 
And I think, you know, up until that point, I was working with my dad and he had a chain of pawn shops in Texas that was started actually by my grandpa in 1947, the first store in downtown El Paso, Texas. And then my dad expanded it to more stores throughout the El Paso area. And I worked with him for six years after I graduated college, studied finance, and then started learning the business with my dad. So I was making loans behind the desk against watches, electronics, tools, musical instruments, guns, kind of anything of value. And so that's where I got my start in lending. It's like in my blood, right? And then, you know, so my dad sold the stores in about 2016. And that's when I, you know, I thought I was going to run the pawn shops. I thought that was going to be my life forever. So when he sold the stores, I had to do something else. And my interests at the time were in finance, lending, technology, math, computers, game theory. And, and a lot of that was, was tied into Bitcoin. So Bitcoin brought me into the space. And from there, I knew I wanted to work full time in the space. So I kind of scoured the internet looking for startup jobs in 2017 and found one before BitGo that I was actually at for six months and then found BitGo and I moved to Palo Alto to work there. And I joined the sales team and on the sales team, I got to talk to every single project in the space and learn about their businesses and kind of help them figure out wallet solutions and custody. And then towards my end of BitGo, we had a lending desk. So basically institutions would deposit Bitcoin and Ethereum into BitGo, like sort of like a bank. And then BitGo would lend those funds back out and share the interest revenue back with the depositors, a lot similar to how a bank operates. And so I was doing lending in the pawn shops. I was doing lending at BitGo and at Curve, I was selling Web3 wallets to institutional participants. So guys that were participating in DeFi, but needed like a multi-sig MPC solution. So my specialty has always been in lending and sort of more on the TradFi institutional side of crypto. And that kind of is what led me to thinking that NFT lending would be a massive opportunity and kind of just built a team around it and a vision. And, and yeah, now we're here. Yeah. So I am really curious. You did kind of list off a few of the things that when you were at Benny's Pawn that you kind of loaned against. What is the wildest physical asset that you were able to create a value for and then take a loan against? I mean, I, I saw a lot of interesting things. We used to do a lot of like taxidermy loans. So people would come in with like hog heads and lion heads and crazy stuff like that. We saw a couple like solid gold handguns, musical instruments, old banjos from the 1920s, you know, old guns, collectible stuff like that, gold bullion, diamonds, all that collateral was very interesting. I think probably the most interesting thing was somebody I was working behind the desk and, and somebody came in with a prosthetic leg looking for a loan. And it wasn't his prosthetic leg because he had both legs. So we ended up passing on that. That's not a good secondary item. You can't sell that if the guy defaults. So... Yeah, that, that was probably the most interesting thing I saw. That's interesting. So you guys kind of had the power in your hands then. You were holding the asset that you distributed the loan against. So if the person kind of defaulted on their loan, then you were good to go. You, you had the diamond or the gold gun or not the prosthetic leg in this case. So you didn't really ever get caught underwater on like giving out a bad loan in that way. That's right. Yeah. And in that way, pawn shops are a great business because there's very few losses. If the guy doesn't come back, then a pawn shop puts it on the retail floor and they can sell it and recoup their principal and profit. But like you said, pawn shops, what they do is they provide custody and authentication and they, they make a loan on the item. Surprisingly, the redemption rates at pawn shops are really high. So people don't like to lose their assets. And we see something similar with NFT lending as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It took me a while to come around to NFTs, but then when I finally bought my first one, it was such an emotional purchase. And, you know, when you have like emotions attached to these things, you, you don't want to let them go, even if hard times hit and you need to take a loan against them. So do you think that there are any similarities between offering a digital type of loaning service for digital goods and collectibles like Arcade, are there any lessons learned that you're taking from yours and your family's experience at being pawnbrokers and applying them to the platform? Yeah, I, I think a lot of my experience and history with the pawn shops and just knowledge of collateral lending has helped shape our vision at, at Arcade and how we think about things. I would say they're quite different though. Pawn lending is more about having access to liquidity if maybe someone has a lot of assets, but they don't have banking relationships and they need a short-term quick loan. They go to their community pawn shop and take out a loan. It's not really for leverage. It's usually to pay a bill or to pay an expense that they need some time to pay over. 
the activity on Arcade is mostly leverage. So it's mostly like DeFi power users, DeFi guys that have these assets, have a lot of value on chain and just want to unlock some liquidity, usually for leverage or to buy more NFTs, sometimes to take into real life. We've had borrowers take out loans for a down payment on a home, things like that. But the lending that we do actually looks more like art finance. So there's a big art finance world where Bank of America lends against these high value pieces. And that's for leverage and capital efficiency. And in that way, Arcade resembles the art finance sector quite a bit. But in the design model that we have, it it looks like a pawn shop. Right. So I think from digging into Arcade and the, the suite of tools that it's a part of, that Arcade is kind of like the sexiest platform, but non-fungible technologies offers an umbrella of services and Arcade is one of them. There's also Scalar Investment Advisory Firm, which is an advisory firm, and there's NF Tech Catalyst, which is a business-oriented financial platform. So can you just kind of give us a brief overview of what NF Tech is and maybe how the suite of products and services interoperate with one another? Yeah, sounds good. I mean, Arcade.xyz and now ArcadeDAO is the flagship bootstrap by NF Tech products. So the thinking is there's a centralized team that bootstrap and builds the initial version of the protocol and over time progressively gives more power to the community, which now are the token holders, the users of the community. So NF Tech was instrumental in building the initial versions of the protocol And now we'll continue to build, but in a more decentralized, distributed way. So now the community has more say in the direction and things like that. We have thought about, and that's why we have Scalar, which is a fund that we stood up to actually make loans on our platform. That's not stood up yet. It's something we're we're still actively pursuing, but basically we have enough lending participants and lending demand that other lenders are, are making loans on the platform. That's perfect. Maybe we can just kind of, this might seem like a super simple Eli5 type question to you, but maybe some of our listeners have never even contemplated what NFT lending could be. So can you just share a general overview, maybe give an elevator pitch of what NFT lending actually is? Yeah, sure. Maybe helpful for scale. We've done around 150 million in loan volume through the application, through the smart contracts. And again, that's on profile picture collections like CryptoPunks that that have, you know, a billion dollar market cap in themselves. That's bored apes that are more like, you know, online culture. It's kind of like a, a pass for an online country club. Basically, you buy this NFT and now you're automatically part of this online community. On the other side, there's generative art, on-chain art based on code, like Squiggles and Fidenzas and and some one-on-one art from creators like Beeple, Pack, Fuocious, some of these artists that have markets trading around them. And yeah, so we've done 150 million of loan volume. Right now we have active borrow of about 14 million. And the average duration of those loans is about 30 days. So every 30 days, that 14 million gets turned over. So we're doing about 13 to 14 million a month in loan volume. And so NFT lending is basically just, there's users that have assets that are tied up in these JPEGs and art. And one of the main benefits of blockchains and protocols is that it allows financialization and capital efficiency in a much bigger way. So users have these assets and now they're able to get liquidity when they need it through permissionless protocols. So NFT lending, it's like any other collateral lending. Borrower puts up an asset or multiple assets. And if they don't pay back, then the lender has a claim to those assets in escrow and they can sell them or recoup their profits, much like a pawn shop. Yeah. And you said that the average loan time horizon is 30 days. Is this kind of a prerequisite? Do you set a certain limit like 60 days, 90 days tops, or is 30 days just kind of how the market has settled on how long people generally want to loan against their NFTs? It's sort of how the market has settled. That's where I think lenders are most comfortable with these volatile assets. They like shorter dated loans better because asset prices could change very quickly. So the shorter days allows more flexibility for both lender and borrower. The asset price goes up, borrowers can take out more liquidity. But yeah, the the platform is completely open and arbitrary. So counterparties decide their terms. So the flow is usually borrower lists an asset and then lender sees it on the marketplace and can go and sign for a bid to make a loan on it. And then a borrower can accept that asset or not. Sometimes borrowers already come with their own terms and they, they list the asset with desired terms for the loan. And the lender can come and fill that loan automatically on the app. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like very many people are interested in participating with term set kind of loans. Because if you select the has term set, there's only like half a dozen 
NFTs that people are willing to borrow against. What's like the running theory for why that is? I think borrowers just like seeing what bids they can get. Sometimes they don't really have an idea of what the terms should be or what lenders are thinking or how they're thinking about the market. So if they're not in a time crunch, they'll just list the asset open to terms and lenders can come and make bids. Okay, so this might seem like a simple question on the outside, but I still just kind of want to hear the insider's perspective. How do you guys determine what a blue chip NFT is? Is this something that like has to be around for X amount of time? Does it vary by the type of volume and liquidity associated with the project? What are kind of the NFTs that you guys like allow to be listed based off of its status? Yeah. So one of the cool parts about turning into a DAO now is that we don't have to decide that. The team doesn't have to decide what's a blue chip and what's not. So we leave it up to the community to make a proposal for us to whitelist a collection on the DAP, basically. So the community can approve which assets they want to lend and borrow against. So yeah, it's not up to us anymore. Before it was, and we would look at things like loan volume, how long the project's been around, is there activity on social, like is it a legit thing? to do some filtering to protect lenders, but mainly counterparties that use our app, they're in the weeds and they sort of know the space and they know which NFTs have been around. I wanna jump into or dig into DAOs in a little bit, but there are just a few more technical aspects of the platform I wanna hear a little bit more about. So you kind of mentioned that folks, there's a DAO that now chooses what NFTs get listed to loan against and that that used to be your role, but now it's not. So there's this element of, where your team was the gatekeepers and gatekeepers can provide a little bit of security for the users of the platform. And I'm kind of teeing you up for talking about TRM and, and the Know Your Transaction protocol that they implement. But like, what are some of the security measures that are in place now that users can rely on the decentralized nature of the platform to provide for them? You know, one of the main benefits of decentralizing is you're eliminating single points of failure and you're kind of future-proofing the protocol a bit. The permissionless protocols, open protocols are in such a gray area on the regulatory front. I really think the only way protocols exist long-term is via distributed networks like a DAO. And a DAO is just really how you coordinate online users. It's, it's online coordination plus capital management. And eventually when there's more in the treasury and there's actual capital to manage, the DAO will have more say in how we disperse those funds. Initially, though, the parameters in which the community can vote on and have control over are small. So it's progressive over time. And over time, the community and token holders have more power to sway the protocol. So turning into a DAO, I don't think DAOs have a really great rep right now. People spin up DAOs and there's no participation and there's nothing that really happens. So for us, it was important to find product market fit first before we thought about token, before we thought about decentralization. So we have these active users that have done millions of volume through the platform without any incentives and things like that. Now, I think to get to that next level, to get ready for billions in volume going through the platform, it was important for us to really have the Web3 ethos eliminate single points of failure, which the team is a single point of failure itself, and really give the token holders the direction of the protocol. So that's how we think we future proof so this protocol can live on forever as long as the Ethereum blockchain is running. Mm -hmm. And I do want to hear a little bit more about what Know Your Transaction is. Um, I heard you bring it up in a previous podcast, and I just think it's super interesting that there's this third party out there that's basically providing a, well, I guess it wouldn't be, it is a public good for the end users, but maybe it's a company that a project partners with and maybe shares revenue with or whatnot. But can you just share a little bit about like what KYT is and how it's making sure that there might not be malicious actors trying to siphon money through the platform? Yeah, so I actually think we use Chainlink now, but kind of for the same purpose. KYT is know your transaction. So we don't do any sort of KYC on the platform. It's pure permissionless. Anyone with an Ethereum wallet can connect and start using the application. But we do scrub every wallet that connects to the DAP to make sure they haven't gone through illicit activity or they're not from a sanctioned country, OFAC. So that's kind of the first step we do to protect the platform from illicit activity. Yeah. And so we kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation, but there has just been this narrative over the past year, like the SpongeBob meme, NFTs are dead with the, all the uppercase and lowercase letters. And maybe you guys were just starting to get the platform out the door during the tail end of the previous bull cycle. But how has lending and borrowing been impacted in the NFT space during kind of like this rough past year, year and a half? Yeah, I mean, we have seen more defaults definitely over the last year. I think 
you saw a big downtrend in NFT trade volume, but you saw kind of an uptick in NFT lending. And that's because the good assets are going to stronger hands and those stronger hands are using the assets for capital efficiency and more leverage. So yeah, even though it was a downtrend in overall trade volume and a lot of the scams were kind of filtered out and the projects that weren't doing anything were filtered out, you saw the good assets continue to take out loans against those assets. I think overall the market wasn't declined, but Arcade's market share of NFT lending actually grew during this bear time. So we were able to really expand our audience during this bear. And I think that was for a couple of reasons. Our team is really sharp. We were kind of going, firing on all cylinders on the marketing side, on the BD side. We were shipping constantly. And I think we're just very crypto native and close to our users. And so we were able to grow our market share. That being said, it is such a small industry. I think there's like five to 6,000 active wallets participating in NFT lending. So it's very niche. And so for us to be successful, the universe of collateral needs to expand. Like there needs to be more NFTs. And I think the way it's going now, it looks like NFTs are this niche market. It's a crypto native niche market that could end up being massive and grow over time. But now looking at other things that NFTs could be like real world assets, like Rolexes or Petit Philippe's or luxury items backed by NFTs. And that, you know, when you start thinking about RWA assets and how that plugs into DeFi, that opens up TAM quite a bit. So I kind of see it as one, it's this crypto native economy, this niche that could grow into something big. And also there's this other side where it's real world assets coming on chain that actually could tap into a more mainstream audience. Yeah, I'm psyched to talk about RWAs in a moment here, but I do want to kind of get a sense of who your customers are. Are these like DeFi Web3 DGENs or are you noticing maybe some institutional or large enterprise interest? Is it the same type of individual continuously coming back? Are you seeing new users come in as well as uh, attriculation of previous users? It's mostly proof of concept. So it's a few users that have these assets and have decided to experiment with taking out loans and leverage against real world assets. So you have these watches and these luxury goods sitting in a third party escrow in a physical warehouse somewhere. And then an NFT that is minted representing ownership of those assets and that NFT being plugged in to Arcade to get loans against. I think it proves the concept of like a more modern collateral lending approach. Like you have generations of people that would never step foot into a pawn shop today, probably, but they all have assets. And so I definitely see a future where there's warehouses globally that have and store all these high value goods that then tap into on-chain liquidity. Like tokenization by itself is not so exciting to me, but tokenization with the loan component with the on-chain finance part, that's where things get interesting because you have things like lower cost of capital, which bring rates and terms way down for users. So I do think there's a bigger meta here that could disrupt collateral lending as a whole, but I think it's going to take a lot of time to figure out how to scale that piece and, and, and how to make it work. Yeah. And do you see kind of the end user, the, the NFT hodler who is going to loan against their blue chip NFT? Or do you see more of like the builders coming in and integrating this part of into their tech stack, into their DAP and maybe unknowingly onboarding new users? Like, is this a user centric driven phenomena that's going to help drive the vision that you just painted out? Or is it going to be the developers and the biddlers who do it? I think it's both. And there's a lot of people building in the space right now, trying to figure out where does it scale? Where does it make sense? And I also think it's going to be user-driven. Like we do get inbounds from people asking, hey, where do I send my assets so I can get you know loans on chain? And we get a lot of interest from like investors that have reached out saying that, you know, it's a very simple concept to understand. And it's kind of one of the few things in crypto that has relevancy in the mainstream. But it's not real unless you can scale it and unless it, it actually brings utility and a novel thing to these borrowers. So I, I think it starts, I think it starts with people continuing to build and we have to build it for it to exist and make sense, but it also happens via demand to get leverage, basically. Yeah. And so now that you guys have shifted from a corporate model to a DAO model, there's also got to be opportunities for folks who might be interested in participating in the DAO as a builder and maybe earning tokens for, as part of their sweat equity or whatnot. So what are kind of the toolkits or the APIs or maybe even the SDKs that Arcade makes available for a Web3 dev to come in and start building on top of or iterating on Arcade? Yeah, so we do have APIs for lenders that want to connect and integrate into the DAP so that they can place like bot bids whenever an asset gets listed like that. 
So we have a lot of users using the API for that specific reason. We are going to ship an SDK very soon that makes it that much easier to integrate for lenders, for projects that are building that want to have like a list your collateral plugin or do loans on their own UI, but have the arcade protocol in the back end. So I think how we think about the protocol is we have a front end, which is arcade.xyz, the app, but we also have a protocol that's governed by DAO that we want to get integrated and composed with other projects. The whole point of these protocols, I think at the end of the day, from my view, is generating an alternative yield source, plus allowing for more capital efficiency on the borrow side. And the yield all comes from borrowers. That's where the real yield comes for and these APYs come for. Yeah, at the end of the day, we want the protocol to get integrated behind all these other projects and UIs, but we also want to grow participation on our own front end, our own DAP. Yep, totally. So maybe you can kind of want to describe for the listeners who might be newer market entrants into what exactly goes on when there's NFT lending. So I own a CryptoPunk and I want to take out a $10,000 loan against it. So I'll put it up on Arcade. And once I list it, that means that anybody can basically provide the collateral for me to borrow and my collateral will be the NFT itself. So when it's listed, the NFT is stored in a smart contract. And even though on paper it's mine and I can cancel that loan or that borrow that's out there, while it's on the marketplace and listed, the NFT is not currently in my wallet. Is that correct? So when it's listed, when you list an asset, it's still in your wallet. It's only when the loan is originated. So when either the borrower accepts or the lender originates the loan, that's when the asset gets locked up into the escrow contract. And that whole process is governed by the smart contracts. So at no time does the team or the DAO have any access to the collateral that's in loan or has access to the money movement. It's all governed by the smart contracts that we built. But yeah, you basically list an asset and then once it's matched and part of a loan, that's when it gets time locked into the smart contracts. So until I don't pay back my loan, the running theory will be that I will pay back my loan and I will regain access to my NFT. The kind of gray area I'm trying to figure out is, do I still own the NFT? Because let's say CryptoPunks does an airdrop while my NFT is currently being lent out or I'm, I'm loaning it out as I take somebody else's collateral. Who gets access to that airdrop? Is that my airdrop? Does the escrow collect it as part of, as just like, this is the cost of doing business or how does that look? Yeah, so we, we've actually built, we call them smart vaults, which basically is like a, a smart wallet. And so with these vaults, if you use the vaults as part of the loan, you can claim the airdrop that comes to the NFT. So nobody loses on the airdrop. We we're discussing a, a newer collection from the meme land economy and meme just launched a token and they have these pretty valuable NFTs and there's tokens locked up in these NFTs. And so the question is like, what happens if in the loan can I still claim the airdrop tokens? And the answer is yes. So we've built in the functionality so that borrowers don't lose out on, on the airdrops that these NFTs might get. That brings up kind of an interesting scenario. And I'm not sure if you guys have dealt with it or not, but like what happens if an airdrop goes down while somebody's NFT is in escrow and they fail to pay back their loan and the NFT then becomes property of someone else's? Have you guys ran into an issue to try to figure out who gets the airdrop in that case? It depends on how the airdrop is designed. Sometimes the borrower can claim the airdrop either way, even while the loan is active. Sometimes if the borrower defaults and they didn't claim, then it's going to be the lenders at that point afterwards. So I think there has been scenarios where a lender has actually been able to claim a default and there's extra like gifts, like it tokens part of the part of the NFT. Yeah, just kind of uh, adds another, <laughs> adds some icing on the cake if you're participating in these kind of markets. So you mentioned... Um, the smart vaults. And uh, I noticed on the website digging around that you guys have this service or tool or product called Vulcan. So I just wanted to learn a little bit more about what that is and how it interacts with the smart vaults. Yeah. So Vulcan, I believe, is like a token gated platform that projects will use to token gate like Discord access or Telegram groups or things like that. So when somebody has a loan that is part of groups that use Vulcan, they can still access those communities and those groups. So it is still like you own the asset, even when the asset is in loan in the escrow contract. And the reason you own it is because you still have an on-chain loan note that represents the ownership of the collateral. So even as a borrower, you receive a note and that note is basically the claim to the collateral in, in escrow. 
Now, if the loan goes overdue and you're in default, that note, you can't use it to claim the asset. Now it's, it's, it's on the lender side. Basically, that note is the ownership of the collateral. Cool. And did you guys brainstorm all these scenarios before you launched Arcade? Or is this kind of a trial by fire and you figured out that you might need smart vaults and things like this after you'd been up and running for a year or two? Yeah, our, our version one of the protocol didn't have vaults. And so we didn't allow bundling of assets. So really the vaults came about because we had users demanding, you know, users wanted to bundle multiple assets as part of one loan. We have a borrower that has 18 punks vaulted in one loan. He basically borrowed 550,000 die, And every 30 days, he just pays the interest and services the debt and keeps that money outstanding. So the vaults and smart vaults really built for that reason, but then they allowed extra functionality and composability, you know, integrating things like Vulcan and delegate cash, which allows you know, users to delegate the utility from the NFTs in that smart vault to another wallet. Yeah, the smart vaults was, a, I think, a big technical innovation on our side that has done pretty well for us. Yeah, that's really cool. You mentioned earlier that in a way, the pawnbroker acts as a bank and that people can provide collateral and take out loans against it. And so I'm wondering if there's a similar analogy here because Arcade is a permissionless platform that anybody with a wallet and an internet connection, assuming that they're not malicious actors or on the OFAC list, can participate. But when you have someone who is putting up 18 CryptoPunks, that's like quite a hefty chunk of capital. At that point, when you're dealing with, we'll just call them a super user at this point, when you're dealing with super users like that, do you establish a more of a one-on-one -on -one connection or is it still kind of like pseudonymous, decentralized, you don't know who this person is other than their wallet? Yeah, I have no idea who the person is. It's all done by the borrower and the lender. We don't even know when when the loan is going to be renewed or not. This particular borrower, obviously we, we know him. It's, it's pseudonymous. We don't know who he is, but we, we know the wallet. And he's been rolling over that vault for a few months now. So it's almost like perpetual bar. It's continuous borrow. So as long as there's a lender bid on an extension. But uh, yeah, we have a few, you know, few big users like that, that that use the platform for capital efficiency. Wow, really cool. And how about the Arcade DAO? I work in a blockchain ecosystem where kind of like the validators for the network are, are tapped by the creators of the chain. Uh, there's 21 nodes. So there's a lot of kind of initial trust that needs to be there. So in this ecosystem, the NEO ecosystem, a lot of the validator nodes kind of know who each other are. They've been working together for a long time. There's no like Anon or know them by wallet address. So how about the Arcade DAO? Did you guys kind of collaborate with long-term users and allow them to participate in the governance process for determining the direction of Arcade? Or are these kind of like folks that you handpicked first and then you'll slowly decentralize? Yeah, so we did an initial airdrop to users of the platform that have been doing lending and borrowing. And we wanted to reward the early users that took a chance on our platform and have really helped us get to where we are. And the token is purely a governance token. So it's for users that actually use the protocol, want to have a stake in the protocol and want to have a say in the direction. The only reason to have a DAO is if you ha actually have participation, you have a product that people want to use and people care to spend the gas to make these proposals and to vote on things. Without participation and without that online coordination, the DAO is pretty worthless. But I think a lot of our holders have a long-term view of the space and that the narrative is collateral lending, is on-chain collateral lending. And, and I think we're very early days that the speculative premium on this small sector actually has a big narrative. And so people may want the exposure of that narrative eventually. So yeah, so what we did was we rewarded the early users that actually used the platform in the way that we intended users to use the platform. And yeah, that, that's the only way you get participation. And so over time, the participation of the token holders is progressive. Like I mentioned before, the only things that users can really vote on today are things like adding a whitelist collection, adding a new collection to be used as collateral. If you allow all the parameters of the protocol and all the direction just to be governed right at the gate by all the community, it's going to be pretty chaotic. So I think you need to train the users and the decentralization is progressive. And that's why we're starting with small parameters like the whitelisted collection stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. And so how old is the DAO? I, I would gather it's only a couple months old tops. Yeah, we just, I mean, we, I think we announced it last month. So it's very new and it was a big milestone for us. We wouldn't be able to get to the DAO unless we had millions of volume each month and hundreds of users each month that care about the protocol. But yeah, it's new. It's still experimentation in my mind. DAOs are 
experiments in online coordination and, and capital management. And I think we've gone about it, you know, the right way on the legal side, on the on the narrative side. And, and yeah, the, the whole point is just to get participation over time. Yeah, I'm part of a DAO that distributes funds from a community pool. And so one of the things I've noticed incentivizes participation, even from folks who are participating in a DAO that directly impacts the underlying network that they build a living off of. It's still hard to get participation for folks in that DAO. So have you, I know it's very preliminary less than a month and a half old, but have you guys begun to explore sort of incentive strategies or is it because people are putting so much money where their mouth is and they're putting their own capital and skin into the game on the platform? There's already that inherent underlying incentive that's there to make sure that they do indeed participate in governance. Have you seen increased participation rates compared to other DAOs? Well, I think it's been really cool to see We've had two whitelist proposals that have passed adding new collections as collateral, which I think is just really cool initially to see active participation like right off the gate. I think decentralization is a product in itself. And if you have users using that product, like initially, that's that's a pretty good signal. And I think it just comes down to, yeah, there's users that actually use the platform and care about the direction of the platform, or they want to add collateral because they want to be a lender on that collateral, or they want to borrow against that collateral. So this just gives them more power to say, hey, Arcade, whitelist this collection, try and get the community to pass it in a decentralized way. That's kind of just the the start of it. That's how we bootstrap participation initially. Yeah, that's cool. So congrats on the going into tens of millions of dollars in monthly loan volumes and on having two interacted DAO proposals. It's very disheartening when you put something forward and none of the, the voting members participate. Do you see as the platform kind of grows and more users, more collections start to get added and more users start to come in. Are you guys planning any education courses or sort of documentation for education on why folks might want to participate in the Arcade DAO or just kind of anything in terms of education? Are you guys thinking about that right now? Yeah, we definitely are. I mean, the the thinking is how do we get distribution for participation in the DAO? The DAO is really covering three things. It's protocol design, we have a great protocol you know, engineering team that's super solid with smart contracts. So it's protocol design, it's NFT finance. I think we're innovators in NFT lending. We're one of sort of the OGs in the space. We innovated on bundling of assets, on collection-wide loan offers. And the third one is coordination. So online coordination and capital management. So I think with those three things, we're set up well to capture this today as a small sector that has I think around 100 million in outstanding debt overall against NFTs, of which we have 13, 14 million of that debt. I think in four or five years, it's that number is going to be in the billions. And so the DAO might look small today, but if things go well and the network gets adopted and more assets come on chain, which we all think is sort of inevitable, then I think the DAO is positioned well to actually have a meaningful impact you know, in, in how this sector plays out. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier in terms of real world assets, you're talking luxury goods. I was just in Hong Kong a couple of weeks ago, listening to legislators talk and they were hyped up on like treasury bills as real world assets on chain. So we're starting to hear this emerging narrative of RWAs and it's seeming that there's going to be a wide variety that can be brought on chain. So from the whole RWA narrative kind of emerging is Arcade really focusing on luxury goods or are there going to be other opportunities to kind of add these other real world assets that can be borrowed and lent against? I think as it relates to RWA, we're more focused on the goods piece of it instead of like the commercial yields or commercial paper like like bonds. We're seeing TVL grow tremendously on on-chain bonds and RWAs in that way, like Maple and Goldfinch and all these other protocols. I don't know how interesting that becomes in a lower rate environment where bonds are not yielding 5% and there's better yields in the crypto native economy. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with rates coming down or cooling off a bit. But yeah, we're more focused on the good side of it, where a good, like a watch or a luxury item or a diamond can be stored in a physical location, maybe in a centralized way, maybe in a decentralized way, but then taps into this on-chain liquidity in a permissionless way. So that's the future where we're more focused on, but I'd say we're still mainly focused on the crypto native side of things. So that's still the PFPs, it's still the gen art, it's still the digital art, because 
even though that's a small niche today, it's going to grow. But we're also keeping tabs on this other developing circle, which is RWA Goods coming on chain. No, that's really cool. This ring that I'm wearing has the same chip that's in your passport, and it can be bound to a wallet on chain. So merging of RWAs and and the luxury good markets that you're looking into, I mean, this just seems like it's going to be here, whether we like it or not, in the next few years. And like big brands are going to be looking to bring themselves on chain. And I think it'll be really interesting to see where Arcade is poised to be able to kind of attract that sort of growth and to provide another avenue for folks to leverage capital that they might have in a luxury good. Are you just kind of planning for this vertical? Are you having preliminary conversations with folks? Are you having conversations with these clearinghouses? Where is that at right now? I I know you like blatantly said that you're focusing more on PFPs and digital art right now, but I'm super curious to hear what that looks like today. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're focusing on, on the digital native stuff, on the DeFi stuff. But I think as it relates to the RWA on the good side, it looks more like a Web2 business. And so we're having conversations with like guys like pawn shops, wholesalers that have a lot of inventory that they might want to you know, store somewhere and, and get liquidity on. It could be jewelry stores, it could be high net worth individuals that have assets laying around. So I, I think it's mostly ideation phase. I think there's a lot of appetite on the investor side to figure out how this RWA stuff scales in a meaningful way. I don't think anybody has really figured it out yet. It could just be a really good narrative right now without really the scale happening. So that's what we're looking for now. I think the narrative is there. We're trying to find out where is it real? Where does it scale? Who can we talk to where we can sort of abstract away all the crypto stuff and all the wallet stuff and make it more about bringing costs down for borrow, having a cheaper cost of capital, making the experience better somehow for a Web2 user. So it's all those things that would make it more real to figure out and ideate first, I think. And it's going to take some time. So I think we've proved an early concept with these watch loans and it got a lot of interest and people opened people's eyes to what it could be. And now it's figuring out, you know, how do we make it real? Yeah, very cool. So I kind of want to, in the final portion of the conversation, I kind of want to zoom back out a little bit and maybe focus on technology and trends. So you were just speaking about the narrative and how important it is to be able to ride that wave. And a lot of these major NFT projects that have wild valuations like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes and all these other projects, they're all basically born on Ethereum. So what network or networks does Arcade support? What networks are on your radar? How do you guys go about choosing which ones to implement into the platform? Yeah, so right now we're just on ETH mainnet. And the reason is because that's where all the high value NFTs are today. It's on ETH mainnet. That's also where all the liquidity is is coordinated. So I think we've looked at adding other chains like Solana and supporting L2s like Polygon or Optimism or even Base, but there's not meaningful amounts of value in terms of NFTs on those chains yet. Now, as it relates to RWA goods, I don't see why RWA goods really need to be on ETH mainnet. I don't think those need to be bearer assets. So maybe RWAs make more sense on an L2. But as it relates to like digital native arts or collections, for now, it's it's mostly on Ethereum mainnet. Yeah. And so you mentioned like the size of just one user's portfolio is 18 CryptoPunks. We're talking millions of dollars there. And now that we're getting into this place where the NFT projects that have survived the past two years, there might be a there there. So maybe it's not just your Anon Web3 user who is going to start leveraging Arcade, but maybe even hedge funds or some TradFi institutions Are there folks that are reaching out to you guys to learn more about the space and what you're building from like a hedge fund kind of TradFi fund perspective, or are they not here yet? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we already have, you know, smaller hedge funds, funds using the app to get yield. So they're lenders on on certain collections. And it really comes down to, you know, Arcade is a alternative yield source on chain. So the average APR on the platform right now is about 19%. And at LTVs that are somewhere around, you know, anywhere between 40% to 80% LTV on assets that always have a bid, you know, these lenders are realizing that this is yield they want to capture and these are assets they want to risk their capital on. And I think it comes down to providing like composable risk-adjusted yield. So if people see 
19% APR with defaults that are somewhat low, 8% on overall platform, that interests them. But I think it needs to be, if we're really tradified to, to get interested, there needs to be a little bit more scale. So right now, the whole space is 100 million in debt. I think there needs to be a couple of billion in debt for the institutions really to get interested and, and integrated. So how do we get to more than just 100 million outstanding in debt? What does that look like? Does that just look like a bull market returning? Does that look like Arcade going out and doing BD and onboarding new folks? Does that look like competition coming to the space? Do you have kind of like a strategy or an idea of how this is going to kind of build out over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, of course we have thoughts and we sort of have to be fortune tellers a bit to, to see what the future is going to look like to build anything in the space. You kind of have to foresee the future a little bit. But yeah, right now the space is about five, six billion in lendable assets. So I think that it needs to grow and the universe of collateral needs to expand. And we can all wait for the market to come back. And, and that would be great if the market did and everything 10x. But you know, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. So we're, we're trying to think of our part, how to get more assets on chain. And I think another component here is like education. Also, it's still a billion dollar market today at NFTs. And there's a lot of people that don't know about NFT lending. Even though the use cases are different, it's less like a pawn shop of people needing the cash and it's more about trading and leverage. But even so, there, there's still room to grow, not the size today, but the universe of collateral needs to expand. And I don't know if that looks like more native digital like PFP collections or just more digital IP being tied into an NFT somehow, or it's more enabling on the RWA side and getting more of these luxury goods on chain. And I think it's a bit of both. Interesting. I'm curious to hear if NFT fractionalization is kind of a competitor to what you guys are building and offering for these power users who want to participate in DeFi, maybe add a little bit of leverage. Are you losing any market share with fractionalization of NFTs? Or because we're talking about fractionalization of NFTs, we might not be dealing with the same type of clientele or customer. Yeah, you know, I don't really have my head wrapped well around fractionalization. I, I don't see much relevancy there as it relates to, to what we do. Like the borrowers that are using loans on our platform, they don't want to fractionalize their NFTs. They want to keep them whole and just get leverage on them. And they're collectors a lot of times. So they like keeping their assets intact, in my opinion. I do think fractionalization has a place in this space. And I think you can do a lot of interesting things with that, but it's not something we're actively looking at right now. Yeah, cool. How about like from a philosophical perspective? Because like all an NFT is really is, is a hash on a chain and metadata that includes a URL for the image. So we've seen like if AWS goes down, then maybe some images will also go down for the time being. How are we going to go about kind of making distributed storage networks like IPFS or Filecoin or StoreJ or Swarm or anything like this? become the norm for NFTs? And is there a role that Arcade or the types of power users that Arcade has to kind of push that narrative to make it more of a mainstream kind of acceptance? Yeah, it's an interesting point. You know, you have collections like CryptoPunks, they're all on chain. The images are on chain as well, but I think that's only possible because of how small it's like a 36-bit image. I actually don't think it's too important that the image itself is stored on a centralized server. I think the valuable part is the, the token. That's the provenance. I think it's good for the space in general to start moving towards decentralized storage. But, you know, for the assets that we deal with, though I think it is important and it is relevant discussion topic, I think the value is more the token itself anyways and the connection that it has with the issuer and the creator, less so about the actual image of the token. Perfect. So kind of wrapping up, you guys just achieved a major step towards decentralization with creating the DAO. And it's generally unfair to work in a Web3 space because once you <laughs> deliver something major, people are already asking for what's the next big thing and when's it going to be launched. But what are some of the kind of next things that are on Arcade's roadmap? What are you guys really excited about doubling down and, and finishing up on the rest of the year and maybe uh, looking forward to, to kicking off 2024 in the right way? Yeah. I think we're super excited to keep building out on the peer-to-peer -peer side, NFT lending. I, I think peer-to-peer, -peer, even though it's not as scalable as like a peer-to-pool solution, will always have a place because NFTs can be so many different types of assets and a peer-to-peer -peer model is the only way to really capture the broad lender appetite. Some lenders will lend against punks, others don't want to lend against punks, some will lend against board apes, others don't want to lend against board apes. 
So I think as it relates to peer-to-peer, we're going to continue building out the most robust kind of experience for peer-to-peer, but we're also looking to build out peer-to-pool models, which is a little bit more scalable on the liquidity side. So somebody with holding like $100 Ethereum can deposit into the arcade protocol to start earning interest on punk yield, say. So I think it's making it easier for the more common user, not the DeFi power user, to start using the app to participate in some of the, the yield and the interest. And also on the borrow side, it's just making things more capital efficient and better UX. So in my mind, you know, this year is about capital efficiency and yield generation and growing participation in the DAO, making sure this is a successful, you know, online coordination. I've been on the record saying it's now November 2023. I've been on the record saying that I think we're at the beginning of a bull market. So I kind of want to end on this question. What is kind of the biggest, it could either be negative or positive, takeaway that you took from building in this space over the past two years and building in a bear market and building during downtimes when price go down and sentiment is high? What's kind of one of the biggest takeaway that you took? It could either be negative or positive. I think we've learned how to stay calm during chaotic times and just keep our heads down and do the few things that we know how to do. And that's, you know, execute, ship and, and, and build product. And a lot of the team has been in the space since, you know, since 2017 and earlier. So we've gone through a few bear markets. So even though this one has been rough, but we've been able to keep momentum with the team and the team is still passionate about what they're building. So yeah, I, I think it's weathering the storm, staying confident in our conviction and, and what we're building. Who are you interested in hearing from? And if folks want to reach out to you or find out more about Arcade, where can they do so? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to talk to everyone. So if anyone wants to reach out and talk, you know, we're very active in the space. We like to talk to all sorts of projects, people building, users, and we have a pretty active Discord. You can always find me in there. And then I'm on Twitter at Stanley Krupp, kind of a weird name, but I've had it since the last 12 years, probably. But yeah, at Stanley Krupp on X. Awesome. Gabe, thanks so much for coming to join the Smart Economy podcast to talk about NFT lending and arcade. It was a great conversation. This is the second project in the years I've been in the space that I've heard is doing NFT lending. So it was really cool to be able to pick your brain and to hear about your conviction and and where the space is going. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks for the great question, Stone. Appreciate it. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was super cool to hear more about Gabe's background in pawn brokering and the similarities that that space has with taking loans against digital assets. It was also really cool to hear how the team iterated after the launch of the first version of the platform, such as with building smart vaults for users to receive airdrops for tokens that they might be holding in an escrow contract. And it was really cool to see a product like Arcade gain so much traction over the past year or two, especially during such a prolonged down market that had a negative price impact on digital assets. To keep up to date with the Smart Economy Podcast, head over to www.smarteconomypodcast.com. And if you like the guests that we've had on the show, please consider showing support for the show by giving us a thumbs up and following on your favorite podcasting platform. Every review and rating helps us really get the show in front of more listeners so we can keep creating content that you like to listen to. And of course, if you're a Neo token holder, please consider voting for Neo News Today as your council representative. We've proudly been serving the Neo ecosystem since 2017 and will continue to use portions of our council income to invest directly back into ecosystem growth initiatives. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast, and we look forward to catching you next time.